Welcome to Osteobites, everybody. My name is Anne Graham. I'm an osteo warrior and executive director of MIB Agents. Today on Osteobites, we are talking with Dr. Matteo Trucco of Cleveland Clinic. He will be answering your osteosarcoma questions. He'll be doing this along with junior advisory board members, um, Camille Wall, Mia Sandino, Vicki Hoy, and Christina Iptoma, our Director of Scientific Programs. Dr. Matteo Trucco is the Director of the Children's Cancer Innovative Therapy Program and is Associate Staff of the Pediatric Hematology Oncology and Bone Mar Marrow Transplant Program at Cleveland Clinic. He received his training in Pediatric Hematology Oncology from Johns Hopkins and the National Cancer Institute. He is focused primarily on pediatric sarcomas and the development of new therapies. He is also a big part of MIV agents. We're incredibly grateful to have Dr. Trugo lead our scientific advisory board. He co-chairs our annual factor conference. He's on our board of directors and he is the co-lead along with Christina Iptoma uh, of Turbo, which is MIB agents osteosarcoma tumor board. We keep them busy. Um, <laughs> um, I also need to say, I'm so glad you're here, but when we're done, if you would go outbid osteosarcoma, that would be super too. Um, outbidding osteosarcoma is our, is our annual online auction. It started this morning and it runs through Sunday night. Um, I, I just looked at it before coming on and like items are really going fast. So please uh, jump on. You can bid on really cool items that directly impact lives and kids of families fighting osteosarcoma. It's an easy way for your community to support you. And um, it's also, you get really cool stuff too. The virtual auction is, trusted, is uh, hosted on a trusted platform and is user-friendly. You don't have to provide a payment to bid, just bid. And every bid that you send through enters you in for a um, chance to win a $500 Amazon gift card. So the more bids you make, the more chances you get to win your, win your auction item and win the Amazon gift card. The event is too good to ignore. There are luxury hotels, there's art, there's experiences like, well, my, one of my favorites, five-star chef, uh, Nathan Rich, coming to your house to cook for you, your family, and um, I think up to 10 friends. Um, Hyundai Car Racing donated an event in California um, that includes a hotel as well as, as the VIP tickets. And just in, we got a night at Rancho Bernardo Inn where a factor conference is being held in June. So much stuff. So please um, find the auction link on our social media or on our website and we'll also drop it in the chat. Um, also, please know that this episode is sponsored by BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals. BTG provides rescue medicines typically used in emergency rooms and intensive care units to treat patients for whom there are limited treatment options. They are dedicated to delivering quality medicines that make a real difference to patients and their families. Um, they do this through the development, manufacture, and commercialization of pharmaceutical products. Their current portfolio of antidotes counteracts certain snake venoms the toxicity of, associated with some heart and cancer medications, and their drug Varaxase, uh, which is for a high-dose um, methotrexate toxicity. So thank you to BTG, and um, thank you to Dr. Trucco. 
Um, would you introduce yourself, please, Dr. Truco? Anything I missed? Yeah, uh, thank you, Anne. Um, no, I actually think you covered it all. Um, it is an honor to be here. I'm a pediatric oncologist. I, I also am involved in clinical trials here, um, mostly focusing on, on sarcomas, as Anne said. I've had the honor of working with MIP since 2016, doing the FACT conference, helping with the uh, osteobites, the outsmarting osteosarcoma, and just yesterday we launched Turbo, which I think was a, a great success discussing some challenging cases with um, oncologists, surgeons, uh, all, a great panel of, of experts were attending that. So uh, always an honor to be here on Osteobytes, doing anything with MIB, and I hope this is a helpful uh, session with everybody. Wow. I am Mia Sandino, the Vice President of the Junior Advisory Board for 2022. I'm very happy to be here today. I live in sunny Los Angeles, and I have been undergoing treatment for osteosarcoma since 2018. Uh, and I am 23 and currently attending the University of California in Santa Barbara. Hi, everyone. My name is Camille Wall. I'm 19 years old. I live in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm currently a freshman at Boston University. I am a seven-time osteo-warrior and a member of MIB's Junior Advisory Board. Hi, everyone. My name is Vicki Hoy. Um, I live just outside of New York City, was diagnosed with osteosarcoma in past July, so I'm still undergoing treatment, but plan to attend Villanova University in the fall once I uh, beat osteosarcoma. Super exciting. Um, and I'm Christina Iptoma. I'm mom to Osteo Angel Dylan and uh, the Director of Scientific Programs for MIB Agents, and welcome everyone. Um, today's is a little bit different from our other osteobites in that it's really a free flow Q&A. So if you have any questions, please put them in the Q&A um, in the Zoom function, and we'll go ahead and get started. I'm gonna throw out the first question to Dr. Truco, um, which is, I think everyone knows that the kind of standard frontline chemo for osteo is MAP. Um, but if there's relapse after that first line chemo, what are, is there kind of a standard second, third line chemo that most oncologists will turn to or what are the different options there? Uh, thank you, Christina, for that question. Um, and, and by all means, call me on it. If I start using medical jargon or saying stuff that people don't, don't uh, you know, if I'm not speaking English and I'm speaking doctories, I apologize in advance. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, MAP is the traditional therapy upfront for pediatrics, actually. Uh, adults tend to use uh, adriamycin and cisplatin, doxorubicin and cisplatin, they skip the methotrexate. So they might save that for second line. Usually people will reach for something containing uh, ifosfamide as a second line. It's a very active agent. Historically, we've been doing it with uh, ifosamide and etoposide, just because people don't like using single agent chemotherapy. Um, but no one's tested ifosamide alone against ifosamide and etoposide. And then there may be some reasons that people don't want to, you know, use ifosamide because it's toxic to the kidneys, uh, or after you know, 28 weeks of MAP, um, it's kind of rough. So. Uh, other regimens uh, like gemcitabine-based therapies exist, usually gemcitabine dosetaxel. 
recently uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors have become more popular and show some activity. So those um, maybe other agents. Sometimes people reuse, rechallenge with some of the, the prior drugs. Uh, doxel, for example, is a way of giving more doxorubicin uh, in a relatively safe way. So the, the short answer is something with ifosamide. The uh, more complicated answer is that, you know, we try to tailor the therapy to the patient as best as possible. And then in the midst of all that, clinical trials are, you know, always to be considered. Some people, there's two schools of thought, wait until you've exhausted all the standard regimens and then go to trials. Other people say, you know, hop on the trial when you can, when you're healthy enough, and you always have that stuff on the shelf um, waiting for you. Sweet. And then I had a good question come in that's very similar. Uh, what targeted therapies or TKIs are currently used for osteosarcoma, which I know you just kind of went over, but are there any kind of up and coming treatments that, that you know about right now? Yeah, the, there's a few that we use. The kind of the newest one is regorafenib, which is a TKI that seems to be pretty active uh, against osteosarcoma. And, and by pretty active, I mean, we're not saying 100% of patients respond, but you know, maybe 20 or 30%. Um, it's got its own toxicities, you know, even though it's not chemo, um, and your hair won't necessarily fall out. Uh, it, it, you know, can affect blood counts, can affect the liver, can have other side effects. Cabozantinib, we love these complicated names that no one can pronounce. Cabozantinib is another one that uh, similarly has some efficacy against uh, osteosarcoma. Um, before those two emerged, pozopinib was one that we used, and that one, uh, its claim to fame is that it turns your hair white. It doesn't fall out, but it turns white. Um, and, you know, back in the day, people used serafinib, usually combined with um, an mTOR inhibitor like Everolimus. There's, there's a clinical trial that showed some efficacy there. Uh, I don't remember the last time I've actually used that combo, but Technically, that's a TKI, and technically, it is a regimen people use. All right, I have the next question. Um, what are your thoughts on treatment for unresectable lung disease that can't be removed with surgery? And what do you think about interventional radiology options for lung nodules? I think lung nodules that can't be removed suck. Uh, I am against them. Uh, that's my uh, feeling about them. Um, you know, the, what I tell my patients is with, with osteosarcoma, you need to do two things. Get rid of all the tumor that you see and get rid of all the tumor that you don't see. So the systemic therapy, you're killing the cells that are floating around that you don't see. Yeah, they may shrink the tumor, but you're really killing those cells that are floating around that set up new metastases. At the same time, you need to remove that macroscopic, you know, that, that visible nodule, that visible tumor in the bone and when you can't surgically remove it, your options, you still need to hit it somehow. And so newer approaches to radiation enable you to do that. It all depends on the size and where it's located. A specific uh, technique called SBRT is being used uh, with more and more frequency and successfully. Um, and then there's interventional radiology techniques like 
ablating it somehow. And you can either ablate it from by freezing it. It's called cryoablation. So you stick a little probe in there. Literally, I think they have liquid nitrogen flowing through it to freeze it. You can see the ice ball form, try to encapsulate the tumor. Um, you know, the limitations there are the size, again, what other structures it's close to, how easily they can stick a probe into the tumor. Uh, then there's radio frequency ablation, kind of radio waves, um, and you know, high frequency ultrasound is now a new technique, and they all have their kind of advantages, disadvantages. A lot of it's operator dependent, so you want someone with experience doing it, and it all depends, you know, location, location, location. If it's next to a vital structure and there's no way to make sure you're hitting just the tumor and not the vital structure, then that limits your options. All right, the next question is, is there any drugs today that will help minimize ototoxicity from cisplatin? So there is a medication, um, oh, what's it called? Sodium something. Uh, I can look it up and get back to you guys. There, there is a drug that's felt that if you give it around the time of cisplatin, it protects the, the hearing. Thank you. Sodium thiosulfate. Um, my office mate uh, helped me out. Um, there's some concern that maybe it, as with anything that protects from side effects, there's concerns that it might interfere with the, the um, efficacy of the, of the drug. Um, so we've used it a little bit more in younger kids that are at a higher risk for ototoxicity, especially with other tumors. There's a liver tumor that we use a lot of cisplatin for. That liver tumor happens in really young kids, so they're at a crazy high level for losing their hearing. Um, I can't say it's been used a ton in, in osteosarcoma, but you know we all kind of know about it. Most of us actually remember what it's called, um, unlike me. Um, but uh, you know, for example, where I've used it is we've had a patient who was blind. And the last thing we want to do is, is knock out his hearing too. And so um, that was one patient where we, we certainly used uh, sodium thiosulfate. But so, yeah. I don't know of any newer ones. Um, not saying they don't exist, just haven't heard of any. Um, Dr. Trudeau, last week we had a speaker who was a nutritionist. And so we had a lot of questions around supplements and particularly I know um, as a caregiver and as a patient, you're always trying to figure out how to um, your counts up and just kind of stay healthy to get you through treatment and would love your perspective as a pediatric oncologist on supplements um, like during chemo, is that okay? Um, before or after surgery? Sure. Um, my take on it is that these are horrible cancers and anything we can do to improve the outcome or the tolerability of the treatment, I'm all for it, provided it's safe and it doesn't interfere with the treatment. And it's those last two that we don't always know the answer to. Um, you know, I'd say at least half of my patients are taking some mushroom or, or something on the side. And what I always ask them is, just let me know what it is. Let me check it with my pharmacists, make sure it doesn't interfere with, with uh, the drugs. Um, and then, yeah, try it. Um, 
you know, if there was a supplement that made uh, doxorubicin tolerable, I think we'd, we'd know about it uh, a little bit more. Um, if there was a, some herb that made osteosarcoma melt away, I'm, we'd know it by now. Um, so I am a little hesitant with some of the stuff I've heard out there. Um, the, my, my favorite was when I was talking to a, 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 a doc who was, you know, talking with my patient about some supplements and he said, oh, well, you know, we can give uh, massive doses of vitamin C. And I'm like, well, yeah, but vitamin C is an antioxidant and the chemo and the radiation that we use works by oxidizing. And so you don't want to give an antioxidant. He's like, oh, well, in that matter, we can give super high doses and it becomes a, an oxidant. And I'm like, that makes no sense whatsoever <laughs> to me. I, maybe there's proof uh, for it. But that, that's the thing. There's, there's not as concrete proof for a lot of these things. And so it's kind of um, at least not concrete proof that I've seen. Uh, I have to admit, I don't read up on the naturopathic or uh, uh, nutrition um, literature. But again, I, I do think there's some value to some of it. Uh, you know, ginger is a known anti-emetic. Does it work as well as Zofran? I don't think so, but you know, hey, why not? And again, I'm not against trying it. Um, heaven forbid, you know, 10 years ago, 10 years from now, we hear that, oh yes, chaga roots or whatever uh, actually did help. Oh, I, well, uh, I don't want to deprive my patients of something that might help before we know that it really does. I just don't want to cause harm. Is there anything that you know of that causes harm? Like, is there anything that like really should be avoided? I can tell you a patient of mine approached me about taking mistletoe. And when we kind of looked at its side effects and its interaction with some drugs, we, we asked them not to take mistletoe. Just leave it at that. Um, yeah. So it, it's stuff like that. Uh, when you're getting methotrexate, you should not be taking you know, folic acid because methotrexate works by blocking folic acid. So uh, there are some kind of basic ones like that. And some of these things where they like, you know, ask you for uh, to mortgage your house to buy some supplements. Uh, you know, I can't say they're dangerous per se, but yeah. it seems a little, always a little iffy when someone says, well, I would publish my results, but then they would steal it. I'm like, well, that doesn't really happen. <laughs> and, or they're, they're afraid of me publishing my results because I would revolutionize the field. And I'm like, no, trust me, if you would cure osteosarcoma, I would be all for it. I, I want to be out of a job. Uh, and I think most of us feel that way. Yeah, what, I have a follow-up question. After chemotherapy, um, what, about, what about that after chemotherapy space? I, I remember somebody told me take magnesium because you're low in magnesium after you go through all of the surgeries and the treatment and everything. And I still take magnesium. I like it. <laughs> yeah. um, so it, it really makes me feel better. It actually helps me sleep better. Like I, I, I'm a fan of magnesium. Right. Um, so specific to osteosarcoma, the cisplatin makes you dump magnesium. So not only does it make you puke, it makes your hair fall out and knocks out your hearing. It also hurts the kidneys. And so if you're ever getting chemo or, or remember back to your chemo and you looked at the fluids they had go running, there was tons of magnesium in there because cisplatin makes you dump magnesium. 
in some patients, that effect kind of lingers after the cisplatin. And so you keep dumping it. You can't hold on to magnesium, so you need to take more. Um, now, whether all of us should be taking more magnesium because we're all magnesium deficient, uh, I don't know. Uh, I haven't heard that, but specific to cisplatin, that happens. And, Anything and, else like to add? I mean, afterwards, I'm a little more open with my patients, at least like have at it, like just don't hurt yourself um, in, in a sense. I mean, the, the jury's still out on whether vitamin D supplementation should, should helps or doesn't help. Um, you know, we live in a place that's gray like half the year. And so all of our vitamin D levels are, are, are in the toilet. So, you know, some of us take supplements, some of us don't. It, none of that's ever really panned out, you know. Um, and gosh darn it, people haven't really, really, really studied some of these things. So I don't know of any one thing I would say, by all means, you should all be taking yeah. something. Yeah, I, you know what though? I wonder if we should be thinking about like as, as a disease community, like post treatment doing one of those panels that looks at what are you deficient in? What do you have too much of? Like, just like a short term, you know, just when you hit survivorship, <laughs> or at least get through first line treatment to, to have that panel that goes, that looks at those things. That, I think that would, be, that would be kind of helpful. Yeah, and I will say most of the, the naturopaths and kind of uh, holistic people that I've interacted with, they do something like that. It's funny because they usually ask us to draw their labs, which is funny, and some of them the high sensitivity CRP is specific for like heart issues. And yet they ask us to draw it. I don't know how they interpret that. So, but, and another thing I've seen, and again, maybe I'm just dealing with weird ones, um, but it's like, oh, your magnesium is two. That's like, okay, yeah, it's nice in the, in the normal range. Like, no, 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 it's two. Yeah, your normal range says it's supposed to be two but my normal range says it should be more. And so would give supplements for what essentially is a normal magnesium. So, but, you know, I mean, let's face it, this is poison that we're using to, to get rid of a, a worse evil. So, right. you know, many uh, patients have, have side effects and they linger and, you know, we catch many of them, the ones we know about, there is one advantage to having treatments that are 40 years old is we have a lot of experience using them. Mm -hmm. um, but there may be other things that we just don't know because I gotta admit we're we're not very good at looking at things like, you know, nutritional deficits and, and stuff like that kind of long term. Yeah. Thank you. Going off of lab values, I kind of have a little bit of a niche question. Um, this didn't happen to me, but one of my close friends, um, because I looked at my values for this too, after she and her mom, uh, noticed, uh, you know, this, this trend, uh, whenever she would have more growths, more osteosarcoma growths, her alkaline phosphatase would go up. And I just want to know if you've heard of that connection before, and if you have any input on it. Yeah, we use alkaline phosphatase as kind of like a poor man's biomarker. Um, 
not everybody who has osteosarcoma has an elevated alkaline phosphatase. Not everybody with an elevated alkaline phosphatase has osteosarcoma. It's also uh, complicated by the fact that the liver makes alkaline phosphatase and the bones make alkaline phosphatase. And you can uh, fractionate it, I guess, but I don't know, extra testing just, just for the sake of knowing, I'm not sure is necessarily worth it. But that being said, alkaline phosphatase goes up when your bone is turning over. And so when you have an osteosarcoma, there's a lot of bone turnover. And so it could be really high. And as you start treating a patient, you can kind of see it trickling down. Now, it may bump up because the patient just got methotrexate. And methotrexate irritates the liver. And so you have the liver <laughs> uh, alkaline phosphatase going up. And so it's not you know, the most sensitive and the most specific uh, marker. But generally speaking, you can sort of see trends. Just because it goes up doesn't mean you're, you're relapsing. But, you know, in the context of other things, it, it's something that you can kind of look at and follow and kind of be a little bit reassured if it goes down um, and a little concerned if it goes up. Um, my next question is based on a personal experience I had. Um, in 2021, I had two small lung nodules grow and I only had one thoracotomy and SBRT to treat it. Um, so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on local control and no systemic chemotherapy or treatment for small lung nodules and patients with multi multiply relapsed osteosarcoma. Good question. Yeah. Um, osteosarcoma is, is the one tumor that I deal with where that can work. Um, and we don't really know why. Um, but like Ewing's rhabdomyosarcoma, we don't typically go after the lung nodules, but in osteosarcoma, we certainly do. And some patients have beautiful um, disease-free intervals. And it's kind of like, it becomes a, a more of a discussion with, with the patients. And, you know, especially if you've relapsed multiple times, you guys know a heck of a lot. Uh, you might not know as much about osteosarcoma as the doc, but you know more about your osteosarcoma <laughs> than the doc. And so it becomes a discussion about, do I want to go to IV stuff again? Heck, do I need a, another port placed because I don't have a port that I had it taken out? And so I don't want to get another port and do IV stuff again. Maybe we look at some of the oral stuff. Maybe we just do surgery. Maybe we just do SBRT. It becomes more nuanced than, you know, my, my, my colleague and I like to say, yes, you can follow a, a recipe in a cookbook or you can learn how to cook. And I think deciding stuff like SBRT, uh, surgical resection without chemo or other places, let's do a couple cycles of chemo before we resect it to see if it's responding and then plan. And again, we just pull these numbers sort of out of our butts, six months of therapy where did six months come? Like, I don't know, seems like a good number. Like, I, I wish there was more to it necessarily than that. Sometimes there's not. But that's, those are the kind of nuances and, and the tailoring of therapy that you know, is, is the advantage of having folks that just focus on sarcomas um, and, and you're at a sarcoma center. Um, I was wondering, what are the chances of osteosarcoma relapse depending on like each year? There's no evidence disease or like, whether it's like one year out, five years out, 10 years out. If 
you look at the, the kind of charts, so we have these things called Kaplan-Meier graphs. And, you know, it's like you start here, 100% of pa patients are disease-free, and then that number goes down, and then it kind of flattens out. And usually the place where it flattens out, meaning not a lot of patients are, are relapsing, is around five years. Now, um, I've had patients relapse 10 years out. You know, it's like, what the heck? <laughs> so never say never. But most of those re relapses probably don't happen on active therapy. Some do, you know, not when you're getting that. But, you know, usually by two years, that's where you're going to start maybe seeing more relapses. And then again, by five years, that line kind of flattens out. And then, yeah, a couple patients may, may relapse later on that, but the rate of relapse drops after five years. And that's why we usually use uh, five-year survival as measurements for clinical trials, because you can't just say survival because you have to wait, you know, 90 years to see if, uh, you know, if a patient's going to survive. So we use the five-year mark. And that's why the five-year mark is usually used. We have a question from the audience about um, lung nodule close to the edge of the lung. So if there's a nodule at the edge of the lung along the pleura, is there a risk of contaminating the pleura? And then also just thoughts for treating that. Yes, there's certainly risk for contaminating the pleura. Um, and that becomes challenging because, especially if there's what's called a pleural effusion, so fluid between the lung and the chest wall, you kind of almost have to assume all that fluid, which is caused by the tumor, is full of cancer cells. And so now the whole pleura, all the way up and down, has the potential of, of having cancer cancers pop up there, and that becomes quite challenging. Um, we actually have a clinical trial going on right now, thanks in large part to the Factor Conference and MIB, where they're seeing whether or not the traditional old school way of dealing with lung nodules is thoracotomy, so the big old scar, they open you up, they feel around and surgically remove any nodules they feel, versus what's called VATS, which is uh, basically a little hole, putting in a camera and, and just kind of plucking out uh, the tumor that way and seeing kind of for, for tumors where you could go either way, is VATS inferior to traditional open toracotomy? Obviously a much less invasive procedure, um, you know, they can go home much quicker, uh, just generally better tolerated. Um, you can't do that for something in the middle, so it's over at the edge. But, uh, but yes, those are some options. Uh, circling back to uh, cryogenic ablation and radiofrequency ablation, I'm actually having my 13th cryogenic ablation next Wednesday. Okay. Uh, and I've also had one radiofrequency ablation of a six millimeter growth in my sacrum. Um, how would you, I, I know a little bit of the answer, but how would you explain to patients who are considering the interventional radiology route and the ablation route, um, how would you, how would you describe the difference between radiofrequency and cryogenic in terms of which would be better for treating a long nodule versus a nodule, for example, in my case, in my scapula or my sacrum? Um, I mean, my, my answer is very simplistic, actually. 
um, you can either burn it or freeze it. Uh, and, you know, again, that's where having a, a interventional radiologist who's experienced and, and knows the advantages and disadvantages of either uh, comes into play. There's some size limitations. Uh, uh, you know, usually three centimeters is about the cutoff for cryo. Um, there is, if you're close to a blood vessel, freezing might actually be okay because the, the blood is flowing so fast that it, it, it keeps the, the, the vessel um, from freezing while radiofrequency ablation might, might burn it. So there's kind of nuances like that. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, if you got a guy who's really, really, really good um, at cryoablation, that might be the better option if you have a, a doc who's really, 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 really good at radiofrequency ablation, that might be the better option. Um, and someone who's good at both, again, it's kind of a discussion to be had. Mia, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. How does one feel versus the other for you? Like, which, which one do you prefer? It really depends. So I've only had cryogenic done on my lungs and my scapula, whereas the only one that I had ablated via radiofrequency was in my sacrum. Um, my scapula was the most painful, but it, that was predominantly the second one because he had to remove a chunk of the bone for the biopsy. Um, so that one hurt, but only for about two weeks. And what's truly lovely about the ablations is I'll get to the hospital around 5.30 or six in the morning and granted, I live nine miles from my hospital, but I'll be home by 2.30 or 3 that afternoon. Um, they're generally outpatient procedures, which is lovely. Um, but I had very, very little pain, which was surprising. I thought I was going to be in, in a decent amount of pain because your sacrum, there are a lot of nerves that, that are in that general area. Um, it, was, it was quite an interesting procedure that, that my interventional radiologist did. He was expecting it to only be about 45 minutes and ended up taking two and a half hours because there, there was a, a, some nerve or blood vessel, I can't remember at the moment, um, that was really close by. So it was very, very precise. Um, but he did radiofrequency in that instance specifically because of the location. Um, whereas cryogenic, it's more peripheral, um, in my lungs at least. And, um, really I've had no, I, I haven't coughed up blood. There's, it's just been great in my opinion. Um, but yeah, I, I do really, really prefer cryogenic in my opinion. So. Thanks. Um, my next question is from the audience. It is, do you have any recommendations for minimizing liver toxicity from chemo? Uh, the just keeping an eye on it usually is, is the most important thing. Um, it can sort of sneak up on you. Um, and something like methotrexate, we know it just makes all the liver enzymes go through your roof. Um, but they should come down. And for instance, I had a patient just recently get methotrexate. Not sure why they checked it, the, the inpatient team. They checked his liver enzymes and they were like, 400 something, and they're usually supposed to be more like less than 40. And they were worried. I'm like, well, I just gave him methotrexate. It's going to be through the roof. And when he came back the next week for follow up, we checked it again and it was back down to normal. Um, so that happens. Um, you know, for 
osteosarcoma specifically, the upper chemo doesn't usually cause toxicity. I know in adults, sometimes doxorubicin can, um, but not, not, not something we typically see. And then if you're radiating and somehow kind of catching some of the liver, yeah, they're trying to shield it from radiation is, is the best way to do it. Again, having an experienced radiation doctor uh, certainly helps. Sometimes something like proton therapy, which is the same concept of radiation, it's just delivered in a different way so that, you know, you hit the cup, but you don't hit, you know, right behind the cup, uh, can sometimes uh, prevent stuff like that. Um, yeah, liver's not usually the one I, I'm too, too worried about, uh, at least with upfront therapy. Some of the uh, TKIs can affect the liver though. Um, and again, you just gotta keep an eye on it and then let the liver heal, unfortunately. Um, I just had a question based on personal experience. Um, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was uh, one of the side effects. Is there any way you can prevent gastrointestinal like ulceration and other gastrointestinal issues that come from the chemos? So the doxorubicin, for example, causes mucositis. That's what we call it. These sores you can have in your mouth. Anything you can have in your mouth, you can have basically in your entire um, GI tract. So a couple things. One, in the mouth, oral hygiene, like keeping the bacteria low. So brushing your teeth frequently, mouthwashes, stuff like that helps. Um, you know, if it's specifically the stomach, you know, antacids like uh, Pepsid, uh, Nexium, you know, take your pick, uh, can help with that. Then actually eating is usually a good thing. Like even if you're nauseous, even if you're just sick, having something going through your GI tract is usually a good thing. Um, and then we use a lot of what's called Helios here. Um, it's, a, it's an amino acid glutamine, which my colleague who's sitting next to me uh, helped develop. Um, and it's, it protects the lining of the, of the intestines uh, from the mouth all the way down. Um, and, you know, in my experience, it helps some people amazingly, um, other people it just doesn't. Um, and I don't know why it works for some people and some people it doesn't work for. Um, but those are some, uh, some strategies we've used. Uh, you know, there's other medicines that kind of coat the stomach, for example. There's a medicine called caraphate, which you know, if you ever saw those Pepto-Bismol commercials where the pink stuff goes down in the stomach and kind of cook that concept, Pepto-Bismol is a different medicine. Caraphate, though, kind of generally does the same thing. Um, and then there's uh, some more. So there's BMX, which is a mouthwash, which is like Benadryl, Maalox, and Xylocaine. So it's the Xylocaine that numbs the mouth. Um, so you rinse and spit uh, that before eating and, you know, everything should be numb, but at least it doesn't hurt. Um, you know, then usually when your counts recover, those sores go away, so that helps. And then um, there's a medicine called polyfermin, which is not 
So what it does is it's a growth factor basically for the cells that line your mouth and your intestines. Uh, everyone's a little hesitant to give a growth factor to someone who has cancer. Um, but I've had patients where like the mucositis was just so horrendous. We could not get the chemo into her. And, you know, we gave her polyfermin three days before the chemo. And it's funny, you could almost see her like lips <laughs> swell up um, from the growth factor. And she tolerated the chemo better, not perfect. Um, getting approval for that's not always the easiest thing. It was designed for transplant patients, but that, those are some of the tricks we have up our sleeves uh, to try to deal with it. Some people also, an old school trick is to have ice in your mouth while you're getting the infusion. Um, with the thinking that it's like constricts the blood vessels, so not as much chemo is going to your mouth, but obviously hard to keep ice in your entire GI tract during an hour infusion. Um, you guys are stealing all my tricks. <laughs> um, Dr. Trick, I had a question about uh, just considerations when you are doing like multimodal therapy, like chemo, radiation, surgery, and what just some of the standard guidelines are around. I know that there's some uh, compatibility issues with certain chemos and radiation. Um, so if maybe you can elaborate on that. And then also just, um, you know, healing is absolutely an issue for spacing out chemo um, and surgery. And so kind of what are the general guidelines around that? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some hard and fast rules. Uh, you don't give doxorubicin and radiation at the same time. Uh, you can give doxorubicin on the first day of radiation, but then no more afterwards. And again, we don't use radiation quite as much in osteosarcoma as other tumors, mostly because osteosarcoma just isn't as sensitive to radiation as other tumors. And like maybe some molecular biologist knows why. I don't know why. I just know that it's not. Um, but so those are kind of hard and fast rules. Um, but other than that, we certainly combine them and there's some, some thinking, and I think there's some, some validity to it, even though it hasn't been thoroughly tested, that really the combination of radiation with chemo works better than either one alone. Um, and so there are some drugs that sensitize the tumor to radiation. That exists. Um, can't say there's a lot of data for it, specifically in osteosarcoma, but we can try to extrapolate some things from other tumors. Um, and then, you know, you, you, this is where having a, a team that, a sarcoma team that works well together, they kind of talk to each other. And, uh, you know, if you're going to radiate uh, the esophagus or something, maybe not give something with, with that causes mucositis right away. I mean, it's just, if, or the kidneys, uh, <laughs> don't hit the kidneys while you're, you're giving cisplatin. So, there's discussion that way. Um, as far as healing from surgery, it's always a, a actually a battle <laughs> of sorts. So, you know, you give your MAP and we do doxocisplatin two weeks later, MAP, uh, methotrexate, methotrexate, then doxocisplatin two weeks later, methotrexate, methotrexate, and then surgery. And 
Part of the reason for that is the methotrexate doesn't drop your blood counts as much. So you could probably go to surgery pretty quickly after that. And we can get into the whole why surgery is 10 weeks out. That's a separate topic. But. So let's say you do surgery the week after methotrexate, and then you need some time to heal, whether it's a limb sparing surgery, an amputation, what have you. You know, you need platelets, you need red blood cells, and you need white blood cells to heal after a surgery. If you give chemo right away, you're almost guaranteeing an infection or wound healing, uh, stuff like that. So you need to give the wound a chance to heal, but you also don't want to go, you know, six weeks without chemo because the tumor doesn't care whether you're healed or not. The tumor is just going to grow. And so, you know, usually we say two to three weeks after surgery um, is when we'd like to start chemo. If it starts becoming four weeks, that's where we start nagging the surgeon. Like, I need to get chemo, I need to get chemo. You know, by six weeks, I'm telling the surgeon I'm giving chemo and you're just gonna have to deal with the complications. Um, but we're a team. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that's kind of the, the, the logic behind uh, the time between chemo and, and, and surgery. And similarly, you don't wanna go into surgery neutropenic, thrombocytopenic, or anything like that. So again, uh, in a relapse setting, you don't want to give IFOS for ride and then surgery the next week because you know everything's going to be dropping. Um, so we space things out. I think it's funny you uh, you say that uh, about going uh, two to three weeks out, four weeks out, six weeks out, because I can expect the uh, conversation my oncologist and surgeon had when I was six weeks out without any chemo. He was like, you're staying here. You're getting chemo. I was like, so soon? And he's like, we need it right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure, he was pulling his hair out. Uh... Can I ask a quick follow-up to something you mentioned, Dr. Trucker, about um, the radiation, when you were talking about radiation? Can you just, like, the difference between SBRT and EBRT and you know, my understanding is SBRT is like higher doses in like fewer days versus EBRT is like it's spaced out, lower dose. And so is there any thinking these days of what's more effective for osteo? Um, I mean, for osteo, and again, our experience, and I am not a radiation oncologist, but SBRT is what we go with. Um, you know, osteo is not Ewing's. Ewing's kind of your standard approach if you're going to use radiation for local control. It's six weeks of radiation. Teeny tiny doses, Monday through Friday for six weeks. Um, SBRT, you're actually trying to jack up the, the equivalent radiation dose because we know that, you know, 56.4 uh, gray, which might work for Ewing sarcoma, will not work for an osteosarcoma. So you're actually giving the equivalent of a actually a higher radiation dose with SBRT. And you do that by giving it over like five days or something like that, 15 maybe, but usually it's, it's a lot less. And, and the nice thing, and boy, I hope Dr. Murphy's not on this uh, thing, but the way I, I see it is instead of giving like one beam full dose, um, you're kind of splitting it up into two or three or four beams. And each one is giving a fraction of the total dose. And so only where all those beams overlap are you getting full dose. 
So you're actually exposing a lot more tissue to radiation, but much lower doses, and the tumor is getting the full dose. Um, and that's why we're able to like push the doses of SBRT higher than uh, what's normally tolerated by normal tissue because we're splitting up the beams and conforming it in a way to maximize the, the amount of radiation to the tumor and minimize it to the, the other tissue. I had a really, really great two-part question come in. Uh, let's see, where's the first part? Okay. Do you know the status of MEPACT and if it will be available to patients in the U.S. again soon? And on top of that, would you ever give MEPACT again to a patient who has already completed the typical 48 doses? So the first one is MEPACT. You can get it for patients in the U.S. It is through compassionate use. Um, the company Takeda, I won't get into all the history of it, but basically they they tried to get approval here. They didn't. It's approved in Europe. It's approved in Mexico and a few other places. But they, it is possible to get it for patients. It takes a little bit of legwork from your doctor. Um, but the process is honestly, it's not as bad as I thought it was when I first did it. The FDA has made it uh, their part a lot easier. Your institution might give you a hard time, but usually most people, you just have to say it's a patient with cancer. And they're like, oh, by all means. Um, and the drug companies, Takeda has been very good about uh, providing it, except when they ran out and you know, it was like a production issue. They just didn't have it. So it went on hold. I Rumor has it that it's available again. Um, so that'll help. Whether it will ever be kind of FDA approved for use in the US, um, boy, uh, I can tell you, I tried talking to Takeda about opening a clinical trial, combining it with some immunotherapy, and they said, that is not a drug in our portfolio that we are interested in bringing to the US, period. And so it's going to take a little bit of convincing to find a way to get them to bring it to the US to even try to get it approved. As far as giving it beyond the 40 doses, I've never done that. Not saying I'd be opposed to it, but it'd have to be a specific context where I really, really, really thought the meat pack did something. And I'd say maybe even the period of time between those administrations would have to be pretty long. Like let's say we did MEPAC and a patient who we were all convinced was gonna relapse didn't for like 10 years, but then they relapsed with like, well, maybe that MEPAC really did something um, and might consider giving it again. But um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty rare patient. Uh, my next question is, what, in your opinion, is the most promising drug currently in clinical trial for osteosarcoma? It's hmm. a good question. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a drug. Um, so we were so far behind um, leukemia and a bunch of the adult uh, tumors as far as immunotherapy. And I really think if, if there's a, and this is just my personal opinion, if there was a tumor that should respond to immunotherapy, it should be osteosarcoma. Um, you know, 
know, the, the tumors that respond to immunotherapy, you look at their genetics and they're a complete mess. Gosh darn it, if osteosarcoma doesn't have a complete mess uh, when you look at their genetics. Um, that being said, which of the many approaches, I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, there's, you know, the Listeria model that um, uh, was started first in dogs and now we have a clinical trial for that, you know, seems promising. There's CAR T cells uh, targeting HER2, her GD2. Um, there's a CD47 mixed with a GD2 um, antibody, which again seems promising, um, but the trial suspended now, so mm, something must happen. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I'm I'm excited about the immunotherapy, and I think if if it's going to work in something in a solid tumor, it's probably going to be osteosarcoma, but I can't tell you which one. Um, some of the other things that I'm looking at uh, with some colleagues, uh, you know, I know I've mentioned this before and then we're close, I swear, but we're using this drug disulfiram, which seems to um, be particularly um, affect osteosarcoma. So it's a, a drug that blocks an enzyme you need to process alcohol. It's been around for 70 years now. Um, and maybe it blocks the enzymes that osteosarcoma needs, or it helps deliver drug, or even, you know, we we're talking about supplements before. Apparently, copper seems to be very low in uh, metastatic osteosarcomas. And disulfiram happens to transport copper into cells. So, is that how it's working? So, I'm excited about that and the work that uh, Kurt Weiss puts out. Is, is, more interesting. And so we're very close to opening a clinical trial um, for disulfiram and liposomal doxorubicin against um, osteosarcoma and other sarcomas. The other thing I, I, a group that I'm working with is doing something interesting. It's, it's not a new drug, but a new approach to how we give drugs. And instead of giving your 28 weeks of MAP and then saying, I will follow up and kind of waiting for you to relapse, uh, the idea is let's keep the cancer on its toes. And in this sense, we're using kind of leukemia as, as a poster child. If you've ever seen someone treated with pediatric leukemia, ALL, they get four drugs for four weeks, then they switch to another handful of drugs for about six weeks, then they switch to another handful of drugs another six weeks then they switch and they get the first uh you know combination of drugs again and then they switch to yet another thing and then they have this long maintenance phase and it's like wait a second you're you're changing treatment even though you're responding to it and that came all by happenstance but maybe that's exactly what we should be doing instead of map 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 maybe we should be doing map for a few cycles then bring in the ifosamide, then bring in something else, and then bring something else so that the, the tumor never has a chance to develop resistance. Kind of out there, kind of tricky to test, um, but especially for someone with metastatic um, osteosarcoma, for example, uh, we know the outcomes are poor, so we gotta try something different. Okay, I have one really important burning question that is on really, I'm sure everybody's mind. Um, 
what's with the horse behind you? <laughs> I was on a conference call with the board of directors for another foundation that I work with and someone had that like fuzzy background except yeah. for this bust of a horse and so when I was on a, a meeting again with the, the the docs that I was on that meeting with I put the horse behind me as a joke and nobody like picked up on it so it's just there well we did you did. draw that horse did you draw uh, that horse because yes. it's a really good horse Thank i didn't you. know you had that skill and talent dr chico i surprise people all the time <laughs> that is awesome man. Yeah. okay so mia has a reference for you a movie reference i had a different one mia you go after me but um i, I was thinking italian dr matteo truco knows about horse heads and <laughs> <laughs> which is just a terrible reference. Please, no. Mia, save us from ourselves over here. <laughs> so. My favorite comedian uh, once said about a certain politician that him being in office is like, there's a horse loose in a hospital. It's never happened before. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so we're giving you lots of references for the next time somebody asks you about the horse behind you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I keep meaning to like update it, but... Uh... No, it's just space. <laughs> to a goat? I don't know. We're going to update it to. Where can you go from a horse? You've, you've, you know, you've hit the, the pinnacle there. Okay, we better wrap it up because, um, <laughs> as usual, Dr. Truco has been very generous with his time. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Truco. And for everybody, um, more information on this Osteobites and all Osteobites can be found on YouTube, mibagents.org, um, social media, or your podcast place. If you registered for this Osteobite session, you'll be emailed the final version of this Osteobites, as well as any links discussed. Um, so hang on for that. Should be should be in your inbox tomorrow. Next week, we will be talking with Dr. Michelle Gert of McMaster University and Juravinsky Cancer Center in Ontario. She's gonna be speaking with us about the prophylactic antibiotic regimens in tumor surgery. I have questions for her. <laughs> if you have questions, I hope you join us too. Um, that's gonna be a really great conversation. Until then, thank you again, Dr. Truco, for so many things, for so many things. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Truco, um, including today. And thank you to our panelists, Mia, Vicky, and Camille, and of course, Christina Iptoma, our Director of Scientific Programs. And thanks to our sponsor, BTG Specialty Pharmaceutical. Thank you all for joining us today. And um, please go outbid osteosarcoma today. We need to kick this beast. So um, let's have some fun during it. All right, we'll see you next week, everybody. Bye.